Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast are brought to you by U.S. Soy. The farmers and partners at U.S. Soy are exploring the complex problems and innovative solutions of an interconnected world. Tonight at 10, the fad diet that's taking the country by storm. But are foods that start with an S really the key to better health? I'm a peas man myself. (laughs) (laughs) Salmon, spinach, and scallions, anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Zucchini. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk with celebrity food influencer Tick Taquito about the Keeping Healthy ABCs. Plus, Elon read it live from the World Pickleball Finals in Tallahassee, only on WCGW. First in the news, last on the air. Um, what was that? I don't, I don't know. I'm Marshall. I'm Amanda. Today on Eating Tomorrow, the evolution of why we eat. We'll pray for snack salvation, taste without swallowing, and eat the packaging it all came in. We'll also answer the question, what makes food good or good enough? You inhale marine air, salty on the nose and tongue as the sun gives its headline performance, dropping slowly into the Pacific Ocean. The views from the Namaste Wellness Resort are notoriously beautiful, but that's not why you're here. This is a haven of clean eating, detoxification, nutritional rebirth. The long periods of fasting test the resolve of guests, bringing them clarity unencumbered by calories. The Namaste website didn't lie. You feel better than ever. You've already sold $800 worth of beef jerky. I think because of the commercialization of the food industry, we've actually gotten away from what actually tastes good. We have lost our connection to how food actually makes us feel. And not just the physical, like, oh, my tummy hurts or whatever, but the spiritual connection. That's Chef Kim Braveheart, who spoke to us in our first episode about preserving Lakota food culture. Here, she touches on the idea of what makes food good and its constantly changing definition. I asked him, I said, can I just make you a sandwich? He said, sure, make me a sandwich. So I got out good bread. You know, I made up this like little aioli with some herbs and other things and I, you know, put it together and I cut it up and I placed it and I put a little edible flour on top and I gave him a plate. And he was like, wow, this plate is beautiful. My mom would never make me this plate. I'm like, that's not true. And I said, now look, and he like looked at it, teenage boy, you know, looked at it, took a bite and he was like, now that's really, really good. But guess what? It wasn't about the, even the ingredients on there. It was about the thought. It was about the love, the time, the intention of putting that in there. That's what he was experiencing. Our expectation is different when we're eating at a fancy restaurant versus grabbing a snack bar versus cooking with family. Our experience considers not only calories, but context and company and cultural values. Take, for example, the sugar cereal boom of the 1950s. Now, we can debate whether or not something like Frosted Flakes, first introduced in 1952, were actually good, but they certainly were popular. Looking at the broader cultural context, we might see why. 
Marketing to children might be seen as unhinged, of course, but between the Great Depression and World War II, America was also emerging from a sugar deficit. So public perception of sugar was generally biased toward, hey, this is good. Today, we have a longer view of sugar and its negative health effects, even if that doesn't translate to our eating habits. It's why the World Health Organization is urging food producers to reduce the added sugars now present in 75% of all food. To hit healthy consumption levels, most countries would have to limit their intake by 50% or more. In the future, what we call good food will be, more than ever, motivated by holistic wellness, which, yes, includes the satisfaction of eating— And a lot of that is in response to an ever more nuanced understanding of the ways we humans make ourselves sick. The fact is, so many of our illnesses have a metabolic basis, many of which can be addressed, at least in part, by nutrition. We talked with Kelly Adams, a medical nutrition educator, about her observations of food-centered holistic wellness. Well, one trend that I think is really exciting and is gaining steam is at the intersection of the culinary arts and evidence-based nutrition education. So that's called culinary medicine or simply teaching kitchens that exist. And um, this is where nutrition education is presented alongside hands-on cooking skills. We find that many adults don't have basic cooking skills, and that makes it much more difficult for them to follow current guidelines or have balanced nutrition if there is not even an option or a comfort level with food preparation. So what a teaching kitchen does, it it fills the gap by teaching the basic skills needed in a kitchen, but it's not just a cooking lesson. Um, The kitchen is just the location for the hands-on nutrition education. If you're looking for some secondary evidence of these holistic wellness trends, look into lifestyle travel. Wellness tourism is a huge and growing industry, only a fraction of which is your standard spa visit or nature hike. Increasingly, food is central to the experience. There are weight loss and detox retreats, Ayurvedic nutrition resorts, cleanse weekends, even something called the soul-freeing organic juice getaway, after which your soul will smell like papaya. Ooh, I like that. Mm. Well, when we don't have the time or gumption to eat a full meal and wear that much flowy linen, (laughs) sometimes a snack is good enough. Heck, sometimes a snack is great enough. These days, we are actually eating more snacks than meals. It's a trend that's been dubbed snackification because, of course, it has. But brands are listening. Growing consumer demand for healthier snacks means that meal replacement needn't be a sacrifice. Minimal ingredient products are replacing lists of unpronounceable preservatives. Cassava, chickpeas, and lentils are replacing less healthy starches. Pouches and packets put pureed peas in your pocket. I hate our writers. He loves alliteration. What's your go-to snack? Um, I mean, it changes all the time. Ah, popcorn. Really? I mean, it's it's pretty much... It's easy. I yeah yeah no I I like and and any way you flavor the popcorn I'm into it. Like okay. some people reject you know the various seasonings you can put on top of it or the sweet versus the uh-huh. savory versus the cheese. I I like popcorn in all its forms. Okay okay. Yeah. How about you? I'm a um you know I'm a I like you 
I don't know if we can talk about these. I like Lara bars. I like Lara bars. They're made with dates. Okay. And as the specifically the chocolate chip cookie dough Lara bar mm-hmm. is just dates and chocolate chips. Delicious. <laughs> and some peanuts. It's like, yeah, I'm getting all my I'm getting my proteins, I'm getting some healthy fats, getting yeah. a little bit of sweet, but like not too much. Like, I don't know. That's my go-to bar. Like I I actually eat that snack. Somewhere a lot. in your car right now. Uh, not yet because I got to re up because oh. my, my daughter likes them too now. So I, they <laughs> they go twice as fast. <laughs> our food future depends upon our handling of a frustrating food paradox. Because even as we're talking about holistic wellness and how snacks will save us all, we are simultaneously facing crises of too little food and too much food. And yes, that's oversimplifying it. According to the USDA, more than 34 million people in the United States are food insecure, including 9 million children. Facing a similar social challenge, UK supermarket Iceland Foods created an interest-free microloan program, citing the importance of access to things like fresh produce, which is not often found in the non-perishable focused donations to local food pantries. On the other side of things, America and the world are contending with an obesity crisis that is showing no signs of slowing. A study from Harvard and George Washington University predicts 50% of all American adults will be considered obese by 2030. According to the World Obesity Atlas, the rest of the world catches up in 2035. Nutritionist Kelly Adams speaks to the complexity of the issue. Chronic diseases that are related to lifestyle, like cardiovascular disease, cancer, and diabetes, are the big ones. Those are conditions where nutrition and lifestyle play a direct role in a leading cause of death in the U.S. And obesity is a disease that is central to many chronic diseases and is one of the biggest health crises we've faced. There's a complex interplay. There are biological factors, there are behavioral factors, There are environmental factors, there's economic factors, and we know genetics is one biological factor that certainly plays a role. In the States, you'll soon see nutrition labels on the front of food packaging. The FDA wants the data front and center so that consumers can make better choices, but will it make a difference? Is 15 grams of sugar too much for a 12-ounce drink? Is 500 milligrams of sodium too much for a cup of soup? If people knew... Would they do anything differently? I think people got to know the metric system first. <laughs> then they in might this know. Country, <laughs> oh, in Canadians, America. they've got this down. Canadians got it down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's good for you and what's bad for you flip flops so often. It's almost a running joke. But Marshall, what information did you hear that actually changed a habit? What nutrition information? Maybe do you look for that compels your decisions? I've actually because I know that. Sugar is not good in in large amounts. I actually do make it a point to check the labels for the sugar content yeah. more so than the fat content. Yeah. Before it was fat, it was like, oh, you got to check the fat, got to check the fat. But now I look for the sugar and make sure, especially with the added sugars, like if, if I can keep that to a minimum, then mm-hmm. I know I'm doing better. Yeah. Soda. I think about soda. Ah. Just that, yeah. I, I Were definitely, you a big soda drinker? I drink less now. I just... Yeah, I mean, during sports growing up, we mm-hmm. would drink, we'd get like a Sprite. Yeah, because that's the healthy version. Right? That's <laughs> clear. No, I don't, yeah. Uh, 
spite of all the evidence we have of diet-related chronic illnesses, compounded by the impacts of obesity, humans gonna human. Urges to eat and overeat are evolutionary carryovers that are incredibly difficult to resist. We're also, as a culture, deeply stressed out. And the simple act of eating food provides a hit of happy chemicals that sometimes gets us through our day. And our existing food systems aren't always doing us favors with the food that's made available. So what if we didn't have to change our fundamental behaviors, but our future food experience changed on our behalf? It took the happy couple three months to get reservations at Nuage's groundbreaking air bar. Together, they would breathe the finest foods, impossibly delicate flavors, vaporized. A poof of roasted white asparagus with herbs de Provence. Oxtail bourguignon, mystified. A waft of chiffon sorbet. For the special occasion, she selects her sheer black dress and he gives himself one extra squirt of his most expensive cologne. Eh, better make it three. We've talked about eating to live versus living to eat and the purpose food serves in our lives. But ultimately, what makes food good depends on what you value. And in the future of food, as things get more plentiful and more scarce, even more so. Food is, it is more than just sustenance, you know. Our whole lives are based around it. We are what we eat. Increasingly, I think what's happening is that our values are determining what we eat. If our values include being healthy, whether it's for personal reasons or for uh, the betterment of our families or, or society, um, that leads to eating more nutritiously. That's Seth Harrell, foresight consultant and friend of the podcast, who helped us gut check a few of our future food experiences. We also asked him to tell us what the heck a foresight consultant is. My job is not to predict what is going to happen. It's to have a, a broader range of plausible things that are likely to happen. Um, that helps organizations uh, focus strategies, um, helps broaden their ideas of what opportunities there might be out there, what threats they need to be on the lookout for. I wrote a blog a few years ago uh, trying to relate uh, what I do to going on a float trip. And uh, depending on what type of thing that you're floating in, whether it's a big raft or a little kayak, there's always somebody that's got to look down the river for obstacles. So let's explore some of the ripples futurists see on the river ahead, as well as some of the more unlikely stuff, just because it's fun. Maybe somebody out there has a truly perfect diet. And congratulations, you one person. But for everybody else, if we are prone to eating regardless of consequences, how might we limit the negative impacts? Or even better, how can we pivot our cravings for bad foods into healthy outcomes? Instead of changing the food we eat, the science of neurogastronomy, pioneered by the late Gordon Shepard, explores how we perceive the food we do eat. It considers the steps of eating through each of the senses and those not totally understood ways that different stimuli affect our experience. Here's a weird example. Researchers at the Crossmodal Research Laboratory of Oxford University explored the role of cutlery and dishware in food perception. They discovered that white plates make food taste sweeter 
and knives make food taste saltier, at least in the minds of their test subjects. Experiential restaurants already try to evoke sensations that a recipe alone cannot. Now, imagine the application of neurogastronomy's scientific rigor with a goal to, say, reduce sugar or salt intake without sacrificing flavor. Sometimes flavor is all we're really after, isn't it? Yep. I mean, it's got to taste good, right? Yep. A few novel thinkers see aerosols as the answer to zero-calorie satisfaction. Scientist David Edwards explores the intersection of eating and breathing with what he calls food clouds. He's been able to successfully vaporize everything from chocolate to sushi, and apparently, they're pretty tasty. Catalonian designer Marty G calls his aerosol solution PharmaFood, a system of nourishment by breathing, and believes the problem of eating requires finding a new mouth. If his work gets traction, we may someday dine in a pharma bar where specialized emitters combine flavor particles into delicious dust muesli. We may also see a future where food systems themselves are protecting us from our bad habits, anticipating our nutritional needs, and in some ways making the choices for us. In the world of precision nutrition, which we mentioned in episode two, wellness assessment and response might just happen. Automagically. Conceivably, you could be diagnosed as pre-anemic and dosed with extra iron in your diet without even knowing about it. Oof, I don't know about that. Fast food might not be the greatest example, but Wendy's is already introducing AI to their drive through Initially, it will take orders, answer questions, and handle special requests. But what about when it comes to understand your individual preferences or anticipate your needs? How might an AI-powered personal nutritionist fill your next Instacart? Seth sees AI's future impact as broad and deep. AI has an ability to monitor our heart rates our, by, by sensing us, our eye movements, our gestures, even at the micro level in ways that other humans don't pick up in a conversation. So I entirely expect this to be incorporated into grocery shopping. I can easily imagine a, a grocery cart with built-in AI that you're communicating with or or something that somebody gives you as soon as you enter the grocery store. And it's, imagine a grocery store with no employees, like we're starting to see um, contactless grocery stores, but with an AI assistant um, that knows you and is able to help you make those choices. Now, whether you trust it or not is another issue. I would let an AI suggest to me what to eat. You wouldn't trust <laughs> its intentions? It's not that I wouldn't trust its intentions, but I... I just don't see me letting a computer tell me what to eat, even if it were the perfect exact thing. What would you need to be sure of such that you would trust it? That I had complete and total control of the AI model that was giving me the information and therefore no one else had their hand in it. There was no nefarious purpose. I just want to make sure that it's completely separate from, from anybody else's influence other than... Doctors and nutritionists, right? What about next generations of AI? Oh, okay. Well, look, IBM already owns the patent to a drone that can detect the tiredness based on pupil dilation and facial expression and then deliver you a coffee. That's for you. (laughs) 
So this startup called Mobimart deployed bodegas on wheels in Shanghai that respond to the summons of customers and migrate to the parts of the city in anticipation of need. And AI might revolutionize our ability to affect food experiencing on the molecular level. Here's Seth again. Google has this uh, AI platform called AlphaFold, which is able to predict to a high degree how proteins fold just by knowing the sequence, uh, the nucleic acid sequence. This is one of the most difficult to do in science and in, in time-taking. And if you're able to predict how a protein folds based on its sequence, you're able to understand how that structure uh, affects its functionality. This is important to things like flavor enhancers, scent enhancers, um, or even creating new, entirely new food experiences. It's estimated that food packaging contributes to about 30% of municipal solid waste in the U.S. Some foods just need to be contained or sealed or protected in transport. But even the materials we see as environmentally friendly are getting increasingly scarce. Glass is a huge issue, and I don't think most people understand what a big issue it is. When you're talking about waste, to make new glass is extremely energy intensive. It's getting harder and harder to find uh, materials to make glass. So how might we turn trash into treasure? The biopack from Greek designer George Bosnes wants to be landfill. Once it's done its primary job as a carton of eggs, just bury it in your garden. The composition of pulp, starch, flour, and seeds break down when watered, improve the soil, and sprout legumes in about 30 days. But why should your garden have all the fun? Edible packaging is likewise gaining momentum. Edible films, as they're called, are soluble coatings applied to foods that protect them from moisture and oxygen. One such process even relies on our friend the soybean, where it contributes a punch of protein to the edible packaging. And while we're in the process of improving the goodness of our foods, why not add more nutritional value to the packaging too? Okay, there's some groundwork. So what can we do about it? We can't necessarily rely on our food systems to pick up the slack, but it is daunting to consider our relationship with food on this deeply personal level. Yeah, let alone the relationship that food has to the health of a community or a country. It's incredibly hard to change our habits and our diets. Kelly Adams suggests we just start small. We eat for many, many reasons. Taste is a part of it, but it's not the only reason. Eating is very social. Some people eat for comfort. Food and drink is almost a part of every human experience. Uh, social gatherings, holidays, memories. And so... I think bringing awareness, bringing mindfulness is an important first step into just examining with curiosity why we eat what we eat. And I think that could be useful to almost anyone for any reason. And there's no one size fits all for healthful diet. But I think an important first step is mindfulness. Special thanks to Kimberly Tilson Braveheart, head chef and founder of Chef Braveheart. 
Kelly Adams, MPH, RDN, LDN, medical nutrition educator and bearer of many acronyms. Seth Harrell, Foresight Consultant. This is Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast, a new kind of story about the future of food and how we'll make it. Brought to you by U.S. Soy.